Welcome to the Archways Podcast. Archways is recorded on the campus of Johnson C. Smith University and intended to support the goals of the Center for American Culture and Race, which is housed on the campus of our partner institution, Guangdong Bayun University in Guangzhou, China. The Center and this podcast are designed to help our Chinese colleagues and friends understand and experience American culture through the lens of race. Here now are your hosts from Johnson C. Smith, Dr. Brian Jones, and Dr. Matthew DeForest. So today we're going to sit down and have a discussion about how race interacts with immigration and migration patterns in the United States. For a great deal of our history, we have had people immigrating into the United States from a variety of places, some of it Europe, some of it Africa, some of it from the Far East, including China and Japan. But in each case and at each time, uh, the definitions of race have varied. So who is considered a good fit for the United States um, based on policymakers, based on what the United States is looking for in terms of workers. And sadly, sometimes uh, we have issues where a person's race defines them negatively in terms of our immigration policies, patterns, and desires. Uh, And to talk about this today, uh, we have two people. The first of them uh, is Ramon Garibaldo Valdez, uh, who is a recent graduate here from Johnson C. Smith University and is about to go off to Yale University uh, for, to do some PhD work in international political economy. Uh, Ramon, thank you. And our second guest is um, Dr. Terza Limanevs. Uh, Dr. Limanevs is a uh, associate professor of political science uh, in our Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences and teaches a wide variety of courses on uh, migration, on immigration, on women in politics, and uh, other international um, topics for our political science area. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we begin with, um, with just the two of you giving us a brief introduction about um, how this intersection is playing out both in in historical terms and in the specifics today where we have, especially with immigrants from south of the United States, whether it is uh, Mexico, Central America, or South America, and how you see that playing out currently. Uh, so, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so, I migrated to the United States about six years ago. I came here with my family uh, with a tourist visa that we eventually overstayed, becoming what is often known in political conversations as quote-unquote illegal immigrants, although the more correct term would be undocumented immigrants. So, as you, Dr. DeForest, mentioned, one of the greatest controversies right now around immigration is migration coming from Mexico, Central America, South America, and there are a lot of factors playing out. Uh, The first one is, historically, there has been a very tense economic relation between the United States and the rest of the continent. Uh, We have had free trade agreements that, on the one hand, have benefited some actors, particularly the United States and Canada, over others. So it isn't a coincidence that, for example, in 1994, with the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA, we had an increase in migration from rural regions in Mexico. We also have, particularly in Central America, serious issues of national security. Uh, We have gang violence, which in itself springs from a long legacy of civil wars. And with that, you have refugees, refugees who are trying to come to the United States, even though the United States does not recognize these flows in themselves as refugees. So, for example, my family and I, we came as a result of an economic crisis that hit Mexico in 2008, 
and an increase in violence draw, uh, fueled by drug trade. The problem with this sort of migration is that you have families attempting to come, to come to the United States and not having a way to do it. For example, my own family, if we tried to come to the United States through the quote-unquote legal pathway, that would have taken us about 18 years, which is the period of time that most families, particularly due to socioeconomic region, uh, reasons or just due to economic reasons, do not have. So you have this problem where you have violence, you have economic crisis hitting the whole continent, crises that go back as far as 30 years, and we don't have a modernized immigration system to address these issues. So my work, my personal and professional experience comes from the other side, I should say. Um, from So I do African um, diaspora work. Um, I specifically focus on modern African diasporas. That is, diasporas, um, for those of us who may not know, diasporas are large immigrant communities, um, more broadly um, associated with the Jewish dispersion um, um, during the Holocaust time and then looking at more, well, relatively speaking, more modern time with the, with the Turkish, the Irish, um, the Polish into the United States. I mainly focus on modern African diasporas. I am originally from the Cape Verde Islands on the uh, West African coast, small island nation of half a million people um, that has a really interesting story of having more people living abroad than actually on the island. So we can see how uh, uh, diaspora relationship with the homeland is sort of important within this African context. Um, similar to Ramon, what I try to do in my scholarship and then in personal narratives is to tell my own story. And actually, Ramon is uh, is um, and was one of my students, and he's one of the people who've inspired me to tell my own story. Um, currently, we have the narratives of undocumented. The face of undocumented immigration is highly um, Latin American, or particularly in the South, uh, it's Mexican. So when you think of undocumented people um, or those who uh, engage in illegal immigration, quote unquote, you think of Mexicans. Well, Ramon and other students have uh, inspired me to tell my own story. Um, I bring the African face to the story. I tell the story of how my family and I, similar to Ramon, we came to the United States and then normalized our uh, status afterwards. Um, so the work that we do... The work that I do is both personal and professional, and it brings in, it includes the African immigrant communities in the United States um, into conversations about politics, uh, community building, particularly the Cape Verdean diaspora that is uh, uh, mostly settled in the New England area. Um, I bring, I include the Cape Verdean story, the stories of Nigerian immigrants, the stories of Ghanaian immigrants and other African groups into this whole discussion that we're having now about immigration and migration and, and that how that affects um, U.S. culture, race relations, politics and elections and so on. And just so that this can be um, perhaps more clearly understood for our Chinese audience, one of the complications about the question of immigration and who is literally perceived as an illegal immigrant or an undocumented um, resident has a very intense racial component because 
any number in the Boston area every year, any number of Irish right. overstay their visas. Um, they blend into the population and are not necessarily seen as the kind of people that um, immigration and naturalization is looking for uh, on the streets to uh, gather up and put into a detention area uh, for eventual deportation. Um, there are a significant, a very significant number of people from the Indian subcontinent who also come in and overstay their visas. Uh, they are not necessarily seen as high-priority targets either. Uh, yet, especially in the American South, if you are clearly someone who appears based on the color and shape of their face from uh, below the border of Mexico and the United States, you run the risk of being picked up, um, not, not randomly, don't get me wrong, uh, but you are part of the group that is going to be watched, which produces a great deal of complication in many of the Southern American states where there are a number of residents of legal status and people who have been in the United States longer than many of its white occupants who came into the United States when Mexico uh, lost Texas in the Mexican-American War, for example, uh, and they became American citizens. Um, and yet they do not fit the perceived profile of what an American looks like, uh, despite our long history of talking about the melting pot um, and seeing a, uh, a multi-ethnic and a multi-racial American culture. Uh, yeah, I would just like to uh, comment on what you just said. One of the things that I'm studying right now uh, on my postgraduate work, well, that I actually started under Dr. T was immigration enforcement. So basically how police, sheriff department, departments, and other governmental bodies in the United States try to implement immigration laws, mainly by attempting to deport individuals who are here, um, quote-unquote, illegally. The problem of this, however, is... As Dr. DeForest mentioned, particularly in the American South, you have immigration enforcement having really strong correlations with racial profiling. So in one study that I, um, I'm doing right now, for example, in the state of Georgia in the United States, 97% uh, of those stopped by immigration authority had either dark skin or quote-unquote brown skin, with only 2% having clear skin which obviously when you look at the numbers of people who are here uh, as, undocument, as undocumented residents, it is, it, it, the numbers do not fit there. And it clearly spells out the fact that law enforcement departments are targeting, as Dr. Forrest mentioned, particularly immigrants from Latin America, from Africa, and from other uh, countries where the majority of the population is non-white. Absolutely. Um, and then I'd like to step out a little bit and talking about um, talk about instead of immigration, talking about migration. Right. Because we're talking about race, but we also have to talk about class. Um, we also have to look at migration and why people are moving where they're moving. Um, North south relations, meaning from um economically, uh, excuse me, from economically poor countries to economically rich countries, uh, lateral moves from south-south, which are uh, uh, economically poor countries, and so on and so forth. But we really need to do more at um, having conversations about why people are migrating and where they're migrating to. Um, 
So to be very inclusive of, of class, right, socioeconomic reasons why people are going where they're going. And I think you touched upon you touched on that a little bit with NAFTA in the beginning, Ramon. But um, I think globally, we need to have more engaged conversations on, on, on what that means and why people move. Right. So then I'll ask the question for purposes of our, our Chinese audience. Um, who, um, who, who probably have grown up with a steady diet of conversations about social class, um, why then um, migrate to the United States? One of the, and there are studies that have been made about this, one of the biggest reasons, at least in Dr. T can complement on this with what she has studied, but at least in Latin America, a lot of the reasons why people move to the United States have to do with social mobility. Uh, yes, it does have to do po- with poverty, but seen from a larger perspective, uh, studies have been made where even if a region, particularly in rural Mexico, if a region is poor, if there is a chance to get a better job, if there is a chance for uh, a parent to send their child to school, migration will not happen, even if the region is poor, even if the family is poor, even if the family struggles. But if in the community where they live, there are no more chances of social advancement, uh, there are no more chances of a school being built or of getting a job with better pay or even of moving to the city, which is usually what happens first. Families move from the countryside to the city. If they don't find opportunities in the city, they will go, uh, quote unquote, up north to the United States. And what happens a lot in the Latin American experience has been the idea of moving of uh, migrating to the United States out of social mobility, out of particularly males, usually the way migration works in Latin America is you have males moving up, uh, moving to the United States, migrating, working, uh, usually blue-collar, manual, working-class jobs, sending money back home, and eventually bringing their family in what is called chain migration. And that happens usually out of social mobility. The problem that we're seeing right now is that these things are changing. Because particularly from Latin, from Central America, we are seeing refugees from war, from wars between uh, governments, between gangs, between different factions within governments, or even sometimes paramilitaries, which are uh, military forces that are private. They don't serve a government, but they serve very specific interests. So that is changing. The narrative of social mobility is not completely accurate now, where these refugees are not moving out of this idea of a long-term future, but a short-term need for survival. And, you know, also, I, I want to be able to clarify a couple of things. So when we use the word refugees, then we're talking about being officially and formally recognized by the United States government, for example, as someone who's coming in legally under the terms of refugee, what you're escaping some type of conflict that has been recognized in your home state, right, where you're the, your sending country. So this is when we get tricky. We, we see conflicts happening in various parts of the world, including Central um, America. Africa, East, you know, other places in Europe, where we see folks who um, it, it it's a long process to get refugee status. So what folks are doing, um, they're trying to escape. Um, their condition, their living conditions, their uh, their livelihood. They're trying to basically go into survival mode. And you see a lot of undocumented, uh, undocumented people not having the time to wait to get refugee status, right? So then you, those are the folks uh, that you see um, uh, being called undocumented when they arrive in the United States or wherever country they're going to. But 
in this instance, we're talking about the United States, but you see a lot of undocumented people. That is one of the reasons why they are going to tell you that they are here in the United States, because they're escaping um, not only, um, um, well, they're, they're trying to... Uh, get social mobility, but also escaping the conflicts, whether it be in their particular hometown, whether it be the gangs. It doesn't have to be conflict at the national level, but it can be whatever is happening in their particular region or hometown. One of the things that, uh, that I think it's worth considering and perhaps the two of you describing, is something you've alluded to, the way that these immigration and migration patterns follow familial or local lines, so that uh, in the Irish experience, the Irish speak of America as the next county over, but they don't necessarily mean that the entire United States. They are imagining a handful of places, Boston, Chicago, New York primarily, Mm -hmm. uh, the places where their family have connections. Uh, In Union County, uh, where I live, most of the Mexican population who are migrating into the area come from one particular region and and really one particular town uh, in Mexico so that that community has has identified Monroe as a place that you can go to, you can have the familial structure, the family connections. Hey, when you get there, look up this person. Uh, Could the two of you address that particular issue and how you've seen that playing out in your own experiences and your own research? Absolutely. Um, I'll talk uh, from a personal, well, the the personal for me is is the professional since I I do look at African, uh, modern African diasporas, particularly the Cape Verdean community. Um, The one question that I always get is, why New England? Why why are there over 300,000 Cape Verdeans and their descendants in the New England area? And I say, well, I have the short version is whaling. Um, and then I go into the long version. But of course, you um, what we call would refer to as we send for our family. So um, uh, just brief snippet of Cape Verdean history. You have the men who uh, who jumped on U.S. whaling ships from New Bedford in the west coast of Africa from back in the day. And they jumped on those ships and they would work that seasonal job and they would go back. But then with the Industrial Revolution and they would start working in the cranberry bog industry in Cape Cod, they would also go back. But um, uh, with the factories in, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island and in Providence, Rhode Island, they started settling in, getting their wives and their girlfriends or the families to come over and settling in, leaving New Bedford and on to other towns that had factories that, that they'd have more permanent work. Um, so you have this long history of that. Um, we've got plenty of family that has lived in the area, hence why my, my father chose um, um, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, small little town. Um, to have the, It actually has the first um, mill, cotton mill in the United States, um, for those of you who want to 
look at look that up. But um, so you send for your family, you send for your family, and then it starts to grow. Not only and 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 Ramon, maybe you can talk about this when you talk about your own family pattern or the the, the patterns of migration in the United States. But then you also have Cape Verdeans coming from other areas of the world, not just this linear from Cape Verde, but depending on if you have family members. If your family members tell you that there's plenty of job opportunities, you might come from, you might be a Cape Verdean citizen who's lived in Portugal for 20 years, but then you realize things are not going very well in Portugal and now you want to move to the United States. And so you start to see these multi-pattern, multi migration patterns happening uh, for Cape Verdeans and many African groups that decide to go from the continent, from African continent to Europe and then to the United States and so on and so forth, or the other way around. Um, And I also like to add that in more recent times and and something that I'm really interested in, in terms of the gender study within migration, is that the face of the... the, um, the face of migration is actually changing because before we had this very traditional pattern of men coming abroad or going abroad and sending for their wives. Um, now we are having more women going abroad, um, having more uh, independence to go and seek uh, social mobility through education, um, through their profession, um, escaping violence, uh, domestic violence at home. So there are women, uh, the numbers actually are quite at parity, almost at parity, where women are going abroad and often leaving, if they have children, they'll leave their children with um, uh, 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 their mothers, their grandmothers, and they go abroad and they send money or remittances, uh, whether it be clothing, monies back home to help as well. So this, um, it's an interesting time for migration and immigration studies. Um, it's very diverse, and there's so much to talk about. Uh, yes, like uh, Dr. Lehman Evans, I'll start talking about my own experience and then bring it into a more into a larger issue. So, in the case of my family, when we decided to migrate, uh, it took about six months to plan the trip because obviously you're leaving an entire life behind and you were starting an entire life anew. And usually, if you think of migrating to the United States, the United States is a large country. So, you need to go first where you will have family, where you know that you will have a support network where you know there will be more than your own family and large number of people who maybe are not from your very same country, but definitely that speak your language, particularly if you're coming from countries where you haven't had the opportunity to learn English. So you don't want to come into a place where maybe only 1% of people in there will speak your language, your native tongue. And what happened with my family is that my mother's side of the family, my mother is from Mexico City. And so a lot of people migrating from Mexico City would come to the state of North Carolina. Uh, We, at that time, were living in a different city, but following those patterns, we decided, okay, it's natural to only go where my mother has a family. We came here to the state of North Carolina, and I should say this is where differences in migration play out, particularly low-class to bring in the class issue, particularly low-class Mexicans. They will not bring in tourist visas. What they will do is... They will do what is, again, known as American political discourse, quote-unquote, cross the border, which is usually a very dangerous voyage. It's paying uh, what other people would know almost as a human smuggler to cross you through uh, 
very dangerous path in, in what is the most guarded border in the entire world, the U.S.-Mexico border, oftentimes having to cross a river, walk through a desert, etc. In the case of my family, which were a middle-class family, we had enough capital to where we were able to request a tourist visa, get approved, and then come to the United States in a plane. But as Dr. DeForest pointed out, once you get to uh, the state where you decide to come, you realize that there are a lot of people you, you may know or where you may have connections. So here in North Carolina, you will find a lot of people from the capital city of Mexico, from Mexico City. Uh, sometimes you are in a store buying, uh, I don't know, food, and you will realize that the cashier or the person next to you is probably from about 10 minutes, was probably your uh, neighbor, maybe only 10 minutes away. Uh, Dr. Forrest mentioned Monroe, which is kind of a poster child of sending communities from Mexico to the United States because most of the population that lives in Monroe, the Mexican migrant population, will come from only one or two towns in the state of Guerrero, which is uh, the second poorest state in Mexico. And usually, again, that is called chain migration because you have family, you have an entire communities where maybe 30% of the children of that community live in the United States, almost to the point where they are sending money back and forth, they are sending products. Uh, you have the mini that formation of almost micro-international relations where you have a trade of people, of experiences, or where you have communities that are very deeply bound by familiar relationships. And like Dr. T mentioned, that, is, that can also be complicated when you have maybe Mexicans coming from other parts of the world, maybe migrating from Europe or maybe from other parts of Latin America where they didn't find jobs, and they will come to the United States and they will still integrate themselves to those communities. So I think one of the really interesting things about migration is that you realize that nations, families, and all these ties that we usually think almost as weak, they can, even, they can be even stronger than just national borders or that the divisions between national states. Uh, you have families where maybe the entire family is spread out across three different countries or maybe different parts of the United States. And that is a very common thing, particularly as Dr. T mentioned, in the global south or in the more developing parts of the world. Okay, so um, let me let me go back a step because China, uh, just to, just by comparison, China is not an uh, an immigrant country. Um, China has diversity of uh, ethnic groups, what what we might call race, that they certainly would call ethnic groups, but it doesn't exist that way because of large numbers of folks flocking into China. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's the China the expansion of the Chinese state beginning in the sort of 12th century, uh, expanding into the north, south, and mostly into the west and gathering up all kinds of ethnic minorities, uh, Manchurians and Uyghurs and all kinds of folks who live um, in parts of uh, parts of the, of the Asian continent, which might not have been a part of the original sort of dynasties of China. But the United States is a migrant um, society. This is a nation um, effectively founded by migrants, for better or for worse. Some who came because they wanted to get rich, and others who came because they were forced to do so. But it means that um, it might be difficult for uh, um, a Chinese audience to understand the politics of migrants and immigrants in a nation of immigrants. 
Um, we hear folks uh, often say that to say we're a nation of immigrants, and it's entirely correct to do so. But I think that we might want to take some time to make sure folks can understand how the politics of migration and immigration has played out in this country, for better or for worse. I mean, the part of the purpose of this podcast and this, our center in, 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 uh, in Guangzhou is to help folks understand the, the problems that American society faces. So I'm not sure if I'm the right person to talk about um, my work. As I've mentioned um, a few times here, I my work is more on uh, modern diasporas, not not so much um, um, historical diasporas. And I'll explain the difference in that. Maybe that could help us shed some light and and, and go in that direction of a conversation. Um, so a historical African diaspora, for example, that leads us to start talking about slavery, um, um, the transportation, the forced transportation of um, uh, an involuntary movement of African people from the African continent into the Americas, particularly the United States, right? So we have to start there, um, who were treated as um, subjects, as objects, and um, so my work is not situated in um, historical diasporas, so I, I, I don't know if I'm the right person to touch on that. But I could say that um, the United States has had a history of what I call opening its borders and closing its borders based on what, ha- what, is, what uh, has been happening during its history. Um, for example, there are times when um, immigration was... Um, the United States borders were closed off to um, African immigrants, and there were times when it was opened, right? Um, we have moments in history where the United States, depending on what's happened in the United States, you have moments in time when uh, the doors were open to, to European immigrants, right? Where um, the Irish, um, the Polish, the Italians were able to, to thrive, um, but there are also times in, in the early 1900s where they weren't treated so nicely and had built actually uh, bonding and solidarity relationships with the African-American community. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm the, the right person to talk about uh, those different times in U.S. history when that's happened. But we definitely know that there's a couple of uh, books out there. There's a really great, uh, robust um, body of literature that talks about the different times in the United States history where um, you could see um, the patterns of when folks, we, the racial patterns of United States ex- inclusion or exclusion. One of the patterns that we generally see with the migrant and with the immigrant experience uh, repeated time and time again is the arrival of a new group is reacted to in the political arena with um, opportunistic fervor by uh, an ongoing nativist movement in the United States. So that when the Irish are coming over in huge waves following the, uh, the potato famines, they are reacted against, um, especially in New York City, uh, by the, the then political movement. When the Irish arrived, however, uh, they had already been trained in political mm-hmm. movements uh, so they were able to almost immediately set up their own counter-movements, the Tammany Hall organization, which uh, ends up having a very bad name in American politics because it 
is hugely successful uh, against the group that doesn't want it to be successful and begins to legislate against the way that it went into power. Mm -hmm. So it would, um, straightforward, they were looking at the Irish community saying, you know, I, we understand you need jobs, you vote for us, we'll make sure you get jobs. After that comes the civil service exams, which strips that kind of political patronage that had been long part of American history out of the political context and began to view it as corruption. Um, we see a similar pattern now where um, one of our current candidates for president of the United States is currently using the tense relationship surrounding the Mexican-American community and the immigrant community coming out of Mexico as a way to terrify and, um, and frighten a certain percentage of the American population into voting for him because he's going to take care of it and somehow magically get Mexico to pay for the construction of a wall, despite the fact that there is no political mechanism in international relations for him to actually make that promise uh, and have it stick. But um, I, nevertheless, he is doing that, and we see him playing that out in a number of his political moves. Uh, yeah, now that you mention uh, particularly the move that, was, that occurred against Irish migrants, uh, one of those moments in American history that I always keep going back to is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was passed at the end of the 19th century. Uh, I think it, it was the last two decades. Uh, if any of you know the particular year, please correct me here. Uh, but basically it was Chinese workers had been attracted, they had been courted by the United States for the construction of railroads, particularly during the 1850s. So it was this huge economic boom, there was a lot of money to go around in the United States to build infrastructure, but there were not enough workers, or at least not enough workers to do this work for what large companies wanted to pay. Uh, however, in China particularly, there was a huge rural population who was in need of jobs and who gladly migrated legally to the United States, uh, worked, built railroads. The problem, or at least the problem for the American government, is that they stayed. They built entire communities. They, in terms that we now use, quote-unquote, adapted themselves. They still spoke Chinese, but they learned English. Uh, they started, obviously, having children. And when the last part of the 19th century comes, the prosperity was not there anymore. These were bad economic times, and so particularly for uh, poor white communities, the answer was saying, let's keep Chinese from coming in. So you have this very nationalist fervor fueled by uh, economic crisis and the passage of an act saying, not only are we going to deport most of the Chinese, most of the Chinese Americans we can find, which included many Chinese citizens, uh, many American citizens, but also we're going to restrict all migration from China for many years. And this is a law that stayed in the books for decades. Uh, up, it seems to me, through the 1950s or 1960s. Uh, and another moment in time that strikes me, which is way more modern, is uh, the terrorist attacks on New York during September 11. So there are well-known studies pointing out to the fact that uh, this rise in anti-immigrant fervor that Dr. DeForest was alluding to, mainly right now with the candidacy of Donald Trump, uh, that, mom that ideology originating from the threat of national security, the idea of an entire nation feeling under the threat of terrorist organizations from the outside, and therefore trying to close its borders to any migrants who come from 
almost non-European countries, which yet again, you have a very rationalized element of migration. Uh, you have a longer history of European migrants being able to enter the, into the United States legally, and this is not a coincidence. We had, up to the 1960s, anti-miscegenation laws, which were basically laws forbidding members of uh, opposite races, whether it be Mexican-American and white or black-American and white, to marry. So you have a long history of ra- of racism in the country, of race-based policies, and this nationalist fervor that almost seems to be always waiting to be woken up, whether it is by economic crisis or by national security crisis. And Dr. Jones opened the conversation by saying that it is very contradictory that we have that in one of the very few nations in the world where most of the population is indeed from another place, uh, whether it is Europe or uh, just the original settlers, I mean, mainly from England, original settlers to the United States. And it is complicated as Dr. Limanev has mentioned, it happens in cycles, and these are cycles that can be activated by many things, and that is something we're sadly seeing right now in the political arena, which have repercussions on, very real repercussions on migrant populations. So we have an increase in hate crimes. So while we don't necessarily have Donald Trump in power, we have his discourse impacting in real life the day-to-day, the day-to-day uh, conditions of immigrant and just in general communities of color, even though they might be American communities. And just for our Chinese audience so that that they understand this, in American law there is a a classifications for crimes that are based on and targeting specific groups, um, whether it's racially based, sexually based, um, ethnically based, where, where the law says you can be persecuted or prosecuted in particular manners, if we discover that your crimes are not random, say uh, a random mugging on a street or something like that, but that you're specifically targeting a group and fostering that kind of hate within the United States. It's not something that's part of our values, but sadly it is something that we see expressed from time to time in our history, uh, and we're in a period where we're seeing an increased amount of that. I'm always... um always struck by this, especially as it relates to um, um, migration within the Americas, immigration and migration. Um, I always used to tell my history classes that we have to remember that even though Jamestown and Massachusetts Bay Colony are sort of original European settlements, that for the United States as it is today, if you look at the nation from end to end, the vast majority of it was once a portion of Mexico. And, I mean, even take a look at the state names, which are Latin terms, right? California, Arizona, Texas, um, Colorado, right? These are these are derivative of Latin terms, right? And, and the other portion of them are native. Wisconsin, Illinois, um, Michigan. Um, Connecticut, the, Massachusetts. Connecticut, <laughs> Massachusetts, right? There are a handful of English ones in there, the Carolinas and Georgia and, of, of course, New York. and But New Jersey is French, right? Um, Rhode Island is Greek. Um, but there's lots of Native American in, embedded in our, in our state 
um, names and of course all, huge numbers of, of um, Latin American languages rooted in there too. And I just it's always fascinating to remember that even though the first settlers that we recognize are happened in places like Virginia and Massachusetts, that the vast majority of the country was either owned by the French or by the Spanish for a very long time, and the people who lived there spoke um, spoke Spanish or spoke French or were Catholics. And so even though we like to think of ourselves in one way, the the origin story of the United States is not just Plymouth Rock. It's it's also California and um, Washington State and Oregon and Texas, for that matter, um, which is which means a lot of you know, it says a lot of different things about our, our nation state. But it just makes for a very curious conversation when you ask people to think about the the thousands of miles from end to end and, and what all is included in that, because it's not just English migrants uh, in places like Massachusetts. Well, in fact, our the oldest city in the United States is St. Augustine, Florida, founded by the Spanish um, when Florida was part of um, New Spain across the New World. So while imaginatively we debate back and forth, depending on which country, which part of the country you're in, whether it's uh, North Carolina, Virginia, or Massachusetts, that's the imaginative starting of America. Uh, the truth is it's in Florida. Yeah. Uh, sure, go ahead. I, I, I also think that Dr. Lehman has touched on this, particularly speaking about the Cape Verdean experience and pointing out that Cape Verdean communities have been here for more than a century. So uh, we have this narrative of immigration or how the United States was formed that is almost like during the, its first 300, 400 years of history, the United States was only populated by uh, white by uh, white communities, by European communities, and then eventually, obviously, uh, those who were brought enslaved from Africa. But the reality is that migration is not linear. As I mentioned while we might want to think of Chinese migration into the United States as a last century phenomenon, it, it really isn't. Uh, a lot of, particularly looking at California, a lot of these Chinese American communities are at least 100 years old. Uh, Dr. Jones mentioned the case of Mexican communities in the United States that used to belong to Mexico. So we have the saying, the fact that these communities didn't cross the border, the border crossed them. Yeah. So you have this communities that are seen as perpetual outsiders or perpetual migrants, even though they were they have probably or their families have probably been here at since maybe the seventeen hundreds, since the eighteen hundreds. Right. And I, that's what sort of what I was driving at and I didn't I didn't really finish it because I'm thinking about folks like Ted Cruz and Marco Marco Rubio who have uh, Latin descent, and I think Cruz is, um, I'm the, not sure if Cruz is heritage, but Marco Rubio is derived from Cuban people. Uh, they're both uh, from Cuban heritage. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and yet these are two of the most forceful sort of anti-immigrants. Uh, opponents. It's just stuff like nothing is off limits in the United States. Once you think you're in a real American, that's when you get to discriminate, or perhaps discrimination is what separates you from others. It's very, it's very bizarre uh, phenomenon, but the movement of the border is one I think that's u- not unique to China. It, as we said, it happened here in the United States where large numbers of, of Catholic Spaniards, Catholic Mexicans, if you will, became part of the United States whether they wanted to or not. Um, I wanted to ask Dr. Limanez if you – I know you're, you're not talking about history per se, but I wanted to see if you could talk to us about the status of migration into the United States now. What does legal migration will look like into the United States now from various parts of the world? Um, is it stagnant? Is it is there a lot of migrants coming to the United States? And I'm talking about the legal aspect, the quote unquote legal aspect of it, um, from a from a migration from a, from a scholar standpoint. 
Um, so legal migration in the United States right now. Um, just to say one thing about your the point that you were making is that um, you, you made the point about Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, and but I think that that's the beauty um, of having these discussions. Um, also, but it's also the curse of the fact that we've had migration discussions as it relates to race and class, but in this linear, in this one homogeneous fashion, as if um, race is, is one thing, right? And that migration is one thing. Um, that even within one particular race, even within the African diaspora, within um, uh, black migration, there exists different, very diverse narratives, even within white people um, migrating. And so um, because those stories have not been told um, to the multitude that they, they should have been told, we, we have this one understanding of what that looks like. Um, and if time permits later, um, I'll talk about the, the, the Cape Verdean, the Cape Verdean uh, migration story within the context of race and, and Cape Verdeans uh, being seen as white. Um, um, as a Portuguese colony, but we can have that conversation if we have some time, because that complicates the way we look at race and, and African immigrants. Um, but to answer your question, um, right now, um, legal migration into the United States is quite complicated. Um, it, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It's much more scrutinized. Um, the process is absolutely... Um, I was going to say ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It's um, it, it's very complex, and I and I think it should be. Um, as someone who teaches foreign policy, um, I'll, I'll put my foreign policy professor hat on and say that um, foreign policy decisions made by any state. Um, you're looking at national interest first. That's number one. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not about being right or wrong. Um, it's about you have to you have to protect national interests. And given the state of recent attacks um, on the in the United States borders, um, you're seeing a lot more scrutiny for those that are coming in to the United States. Those that are even seeking refugee status. Those that are even seeking. Um, permanent status or those who are trying to be in the United States who are applying for United States citizenship. Um, and unfortunately, there's going to be, and this is the sad part, that there's going to be even more scrutiny of those who are coming from Middle Eastern countries or those who have, um, who who uh, declare Islam as their religion um, because of recent situations um, that are happening throughout the world. Um, but that's... Um, that is the reality of the situation here in the United States. There's um, from the immigration law side. There's additional forms one have to one has to fill out whether or not you're coming in for a, a visit, right? So migration. We're talking about transnationalism, um, the way people move from place to place, um, or whether you're coming, as I said earlier, as a, uh, as a permanent resident or you're applying for citizenship. So it's much more complicated, uh, and I think it should be from a foreign policy perspective as the United States attempts to figure out what it wants to do next in terms of its foreign policy and national security. Did you want to talk about what you were just raising with the um, 
with the complexities of the Cape Verdean, and because the Irish experience has a similar moment when they move from um, the Victorian classifications of the skull types, Negroid, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and there was a fourth one that I can never remember, that for a long time the Irish were classified as Negroid, so they were seen as being coterminous with the population of all of Africa. Um, and at, at one point in history, the Irish, um, there, there's a book by a scholar out there saying how the Irish became white. Ignatieff. Yeah. I have that um, book in my office if you'd le- if you want to borrow it. <laughs> but it, from what you're saying, the Cape Verdeans have a similar kind of, of story. Oh, absolutely. Um, so um, for our audience sake, it's, it's really important that uh, we mention that um, Cape Verde was a Portuguese colony until 1975. So they're migrating, um, and this is voluntary migration from Cape Verde to the United States, um, but their passport says that they're, um, the, the province on it, it says um, the state, Portugal, province, Cape Verde. So by all intents and purposes, Cape Verdeans are Portuguese. And so in the United States, because of the strict racial history, you have to declare your race. And so Cape Verdeans marked white. And so, um, so that was really interesting in the way that Cape Verdeans um, navigated their own communities as they came into um, into their own into building their own communities or emerging themselves in either. Um, well, the interesting thing that happens is that they try to go into Portuguese communities. Portuguese communities look at them and say, "Well, you're not white and you're not Portuguese," so they get alienated from that. So then they go into African-American communities and they don't quite understand that. And they see that the African-American community is being discriminated against during this time period. And they don't, the Cape Verdeans made a strategic choice not to be associated with the African-American community because they were being discriminated against the African-American community. So then you have Cape Verdeans building their own community. You also have very light and white Cape Verdeans who could pass and chose to live that life as a, a white Portuguese. But um, so Cape Verdeans have had a really complicated history with the Portuguese community in the New England area, the white community, and with the African-American and other African immigrant communities based on the individual choices. I mean, there were Cape Verdeans who did uh, see themselves as African-American, and align themselves with the African-American community. But then also that there are Cape Verdeans who chose um, to either pass or just create their own, just say, well, I'm Cape Verdean. I'm neither or, or. I'm, I'm just Cape Verdean, right? Um, and so that's been an interesting conversation throughout the years over the last decades where the African-American community still says, well, Cape Verdeans, they don't see themselves as African. Um, the Portuguese community doesn't want them. They're certainly not white, but they think they are. So if you look at most books about Cape Verdeans in the United States, you're going to see this narrative about, well, they come in, they come in as white, but they're really not. Um, But that, again, shows you how the the strict racial um, strata in the United States um, kind of forces immigrant immigrant communities or individual immigrant people to make decisions about race and, and choose race and ethnicity, whereas the story is completely different if you go and see Cape Verdean communities, if you study Cape Verdean communities in other parts 
of the world like Holland and Spain and Portugal and so on and so forth that don't have this strict racial um, history as the United States does. I'm not saying that there are not there are not racial issues that happen in those states. I'm just saying that here it's much more in the forefront and it's much more of a conversation, open conversation, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, any any final words on on the status of um, immigration or migration um, in the United States for our for our Chinese audience? Anything that they that we may have left out that they absolutely have to understand about our, our current migration and immigration situation in the United States? Uh, one of the things that I think often gets distorted and distorted in political conversations is political conversations around migrations are filled with strife, and I don't know that that's how day-to-day lives are in a lot of communities. Uh, One example that I have is I live in the eastern part of Charlotte in what is now being known as the International Corridor, which is a community which used to be um, very economically desolate. And in the past 10 years, a lot of migrants from around the world, not only Latin America, a lot of migrants from Vietnam, a lot of migrants from, uh, I have neighbors that are from Iraq, I have neighbors that are from uh, Kenya are coming into this part of the city and it is becoming a very blooming part of town. You have Vietnamese restaurants, you have uh, uh, Israeli grocery stores, you have Salvadorian businesses, Mexican businesses. And these are places where it's even though people may not speak the same language, they come to understand each other. And the same thing with uh, the African-American households who have been living there for generations who learn how to live with their neighbors, learn how to uh, cooperate with them. So I believe that politics, particularly com- political conversations in the U.S., often brings out almost the worst of certain communities or of the way we speak about others. But in the day-to-day lived realities of many American communities where migration is the rule, there can be cooperation and things can work out for I believe that things can work out, and there's a reason why the United States, one of its beauty is in diversity, and part of its beauty is in the fact that it is a nation of immigrants, and that it's a nation that, at the end of the day, I'm very optimistic about the fact that it can move forward, and it can have these conversations, and maybe solve them, even. Uh, absolutely, Ramon. I think you said it beautifully. Um, I would add that... Um, when we have these conversations, as you said, you know, we don't we don't we don't see the 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 face of the of the of the migrant, of the of the immigrant, the person who's living day to day, who um, um, who's making strategic choices about, you know, where to send their children to school, where to work. And oftentimes we see them as um, victims of their circumstances. And uh, my scholarship um looks at the the, the empowered migrant, the empowered community person who sees, um, who still will choose the United States as a destination country. Um, I think most migrants understand that the United States ultimately, no country is perfect, but in the United States, you have this awesome ability to to, to live your best life if you, um, oftentimes not only if you so choose, but even under undocumented status, you can still live your best life in the United States. Um, you can still form community. You can still build community. You're still able to exercise your cultural and your social um, um, 
activities, for lack of a better word. Um, you're still able to 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 build organizations and to launch organizations that support your homeland, um, something that migrants um, in other places in the world are not able to do because that is not, um, that is frowned upon. You're not able to do that. Um, so, and, and these communities, um, American communities, they welcome that. So migrants, I would say um, that, um, I put myself in that list, we're not victims of our circumstances. We are here in the United States to strive to become better human beings. I think um, Ramon and I are a perfect example of that. We've, um, we've shown gratitude for what our parents were um, wanting to do, which was to come to a brand new country, completely new culture, new language, and who, who worked and still work um, crazy hours and really tough jobs to, to to give us a future. And I think Ramon and I are a great example of of what the American society and what American people um, can be. And I think that there's millions and millions of more stories just like myself and Ramon. And that is what's beautiful about the United States and its migration story. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here and talking about um, uh, these issues, which Mo mentioned are sometimes filled with strife. But I'm, I'm glad that uh, these conversation that we had today is not and can can end on a somewhat positive note. So, uh, on behalf of um, of our guests and uh, Dr. DeForest, uh, we will see you next time. Look forward to our next uh, download in the iTunes Store. And Matt, you've got something? Yes, just a reminder to our uh, listeners: if you want to get in touch with us to suggest topics or to respond to anything that you've heard, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, the best way, you can reach me via email directly at mdeforrest at jcsu.edu. And uh, I believe we also have an, an arts and letters uh, email account at artsletters at icloud.com. Yes. Is that right? Good. Uh, great. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Archways Podcast is a production of Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, USA, in partnership with the Guangdong Bayoun University in Guangzhou's People's Republic of China. Archways is made possible through generous funding from the United States Embassy in Beijing, China, and through the College of Arts and Letters at Johnson C. Smith University. Additional support has been provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. Email us at jcsuartsletters at gmail.com.